Hi, welcome to The Blood Flow with Will Hubbard. Today I'm joined by Miriam Goldstein, Director of Policy at the Hemophilia Federation of America, to talk over the results of the last election and what we can expect in the field of healthcare policy from the Biden administration. Miriam, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So obviously, it's taken a long time for the results of this election to become clear, but it seems like we finally have some clarity going forwards about what the presidency will look like, obviously, and then also the House and the Senate. So what can we say about the results of the 2020 election? Well, it certainly was a tumultuous election, and I'm glad that we're, we're ending the election phase and hopefully moving into the governing phase. Um, as you say, kind of took a little while to, to count all the votes and, and so on in the, the presidential election. Uh, the inauguration is coming up next week. Um, but what took even longer was knowing who would be in control of the Senate. So coming out of November, the uh, Democrats retained a slightly smaller, but retained a majority in the House. Um, but the, the results of the what was going to happen in the Senate was up in the air because uh, unusually, both of the Senate seats from Georgia were up for election, and uh, Georgia has ruled that uh, it goes to a, a re-election if no candidate gets over 50% of the vote. So both of the seats were up, and both of the seats had to have runoff elections. Um, and those weren't held until January 5th, and those um, in kind of a landmark change of both switched from Republican to Democratic uh, holders of the Senate seats in Georgia. That means that the Senate is evenly divided 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. And because the vice president, incoming vice president-elect Kamala Harris, um, gets a deciding vote in the Senate, that means that the control of the Senate has switched from the Republicans to the Democrats, um, giving the Democrats what's called a trifecta. We have a Democratic president, and the Democrats have very narrow majorities in both the Senate and the House. That has a lot of significance for uh, how much of the president, incoming president's agenda, policy agenda, can get through. And, and the means he has available to try and enact his agenda. Perfect. Well, you know, one thing that I, I know from, uh, you're, you're the expert, well, one thing I'm aware of is that, you know, as you say, this is a tenuous majority, um, which limits how much of an agenda can be implemented. But one area of health policy, I think, where there's real bipartisan pressure to get something done is COVID, right? Um, and so with this trifecta of Democrats in office and with this mounting pressure to address this epidemic, what's the prospects of COVID relief look like going into this new Congress? I, I think you're right. COVID is going to be priority number one, two, and three for the incoming administration, both because the pandemic continues to rage on and um, so they're going to have to address it as a health crisis, but as you also correctly say, as an economic crisis. Mm -hmm. um, there has been so much fallout in terms of people losing their jobs, losing hours of their jobs, 
um, and then a, a follow-on fallout to state budgets, state and local budgets, um, that, that COVID is going to have to be a priority in terms of um, speeding up the rollout of vaccines, in terms of um, continuing with um, health programs, um, making sure that COVID testing uh, is broadly available, COVID treatment, but also, as you say, COVID relief. Um, so th those are going to be the immediate priorities, I would expect, of the incoming administration. Um, in the area of COVID relief, uh, there's hope for, um, the, or the administration seems inclined to take a very um, assertive response. You know, one of the, the things that there's been a lot of talk about is another $2,000 per person um, payment to, to try and uh, help people who have lost jobs, trying to help the economy. Um, but beyond that, talk about restoring the $600 a week federal unemployment insurance benefit that lapsed over the summer of 2020. Um, further boosting federal funds to state Medicaid programs. Mm -hmm. um, Medicaid programs are a joint federal state venture with the, the federal government providing a lot of the money. Um, in the spring of 2020, the federal government boosted how much money they contribute to Medicaid, and there's a request that they boost that even further. That would be an effective way, not just of supporting Medicaid, which has absorbed a lot more people as they have lost private insurance, but also supporting those state and local governments with, with some additional financial help. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I speak for everyone when I say I, I hope many of these provisions pass. Um, one thing that we've seen from the pandemic is it's illustrated some um, cracks in the system and it's forced us to reevaluate the state of American healthcare. Uh, perhaps the most recent example of this is telehealth, right? We went back to the drawing board on how we address telehealth because the pandemic made it clear that the current regulations and laws surrounding were really insufficient. Are there any other areas like that that you think the current crisis has created a political willingness to address? And what sort of buzz do you hear from the Hill about changing things in light of what we've seen from this pandemic? So telehealth is an excellent example um, that there's been a huge uptick in how much that's been used. Uh, and there were temporary authorities granted to expand the use of telehealth during the pandemic. There's a lot of interest in making that permanent going forward. Um, at the same time, there are um, areas of inequity that have to be explored and fixed with telehealth. There are, there are swabs uh, of the country and, and um, demographics that don't have access to reliable broadband. So what does telehealth mean in, um, you know, to people who, for whom that infrastructure isn't readily available. Um, so I would say there's a lot more to be, to be explored and, and worked out to make telehealth available and available on equitable terms. There, the incoming administration 
um, campaigned uh, on an agenda of you know enhancing coverage for and making coverage available to many more people and of course those needs only become more pressing with covid so um, making sure that medicaid expansion so um, states covering all low-income adults um, is taken up across the country uh, the affordable care act made medicaid expansion an option for states, but at this point in 2021, there are still 12 states that have not expanded their Medicaid programs to cover all low-income adults. And so there's a lot of interest in um, possible incentives to let's complete that the process of adopting Medicaid expansion, or let's create other vehicles for people to either a full access or be able to afford coverage um, either through the marketplaces, maybe through a an earlier age of eligibility for mm -hmm. Medicare or some kind of public option. Well, you actually jumped the gun right to my next question um, because, you know, the, the, the ACA has been a landmark piece of legislation and transformative for our community. And Republicans have pointed out flaws within and said, we, we should start over. Um, and they, they've always you know, said we want to do some things with, we like some parts of the ACA, but we we just think something can be done better. And Democrats have said, we recognize there are problems with this law, but let's build on it rather than starting over. And now Democrats are in a position to do that building, right? With their um, mandate in the, weak mandate, but mandate nevertheless in the House and the Senate. Um, so what movement do you think we'll see on the ACA? What are some of the, the things that Democrats want to, to fix and what forms would those fixes take? That's a, that's a great question. So there's a long list of things that um, the incoming majorities and the administration want to fix. And then there's a question of how much can they get through Congress with the narrow majority and how much can they achieve maybe through some other means if they don't think they can get it through Congress. So um, one one area would be to increase the amount of subsidies to help people afford premiums for private insurance in the ACA marketplace. That's one of the, the items that um, President-elect Biden campaigned on. He wanted to, right now there's something called the subsidy um, cliff. So you're, you're entitled to subsidies based on your income up to a certain point. And if your income is at 400% of the federal poverty level, you aren't entitled to any subsidies. So 395% of the federal poverty level subsidy, 401% no subsidy. Um, President Biden has said, let's make sure that no one pays more than eight and a half percent of their income on premiums. So that, that gets rid of the cliff. You might be able to get subsidies even above 400% of the federal poverty level if you are in an expensive area in an area where premiums are just very high um, so so that's um, one of the the policies that the incoming administration would like to see the incoming administration talked a lot about creating a public option in the marketplaces administered by medicare that would be available to everyone and that could help that could help um, low-income people in those non-Medicaid expansion states because it would be available for free to, to 
people of low income, it would also address some of the other glitches in the Affordable Care Act, like people who have um, insurance from their employers that either doesn't meet standards of affordability for their family or doesn't cover what they need. Right now, those people may not be eligible for, for subsidies in the marketplaces, but if this public option were available, that could start addressing those kinds of situations. Um, again, uh, lowering uh, the age of eligibility for, um, for Medicare would be an option. That might be a, a tough thing to achieve through a narrowly divided Congress. Um, boosting uh, outreach and assistance for the ACA marketplaces. That was something that the Trump administration slashed when they came in. And um, there's good evidence that having robust outreach and assistance to people who want to enroll in marketplace plans really does a lot to, to boost enrollment. I think I'll stop there. No, that's a lot. It's like you, you say I'll stop there as if that's not much, but you know, my head is spinning and all those would do a great deal to, to change the, the lived experience of people interfacing with the ACA. So this would be an amazing boon. Um, but you know, you mentioned sort of a narrowly divided Congress and how the political um, scene affects the, the policy. My question is, how much of this do you think, what's most likely and what's least likely and what mechanisms do Democrats have to implement their agenda and either reach across the aisle or push through some of this stuff even in the face of some resistance? Yeah, that, that's a great, question. So as you know, we now live in a world where it basically takes um, a 60 vote majority in the Senate to pass legislation through what's called regular order. And so with a 50-50 Senate, that means um, to get legislation through regular order, you're going to have to win a lot of bipartisan support. And over the 11 years since the ACA's enactment, in fact, bipartisan support has not been there for the ACA. There are ways to pass legislation um, with just a 50 plus one um, vote in the Senate, and that's through this arcane process called reconciliation, um, which is only available for certain types of bills. They have to be... Um, uh, budget related. So they have to relate to um, revenue and spending. And uh, they also um, can't increase the deficit. So, so things like the public option might be a little harder to get through via reconciliation. Um, it would also require the Democrats to maintain unanimity to, you know, keep the entire Democratic caucus uh, behind the administration's priority. So, so it's kind of a narrow winding um, path that you have to thread to, to get legislation through reconciliation. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, avenues that the administration can use that don't require them to go through <laughs> Congress. And we've seen a lot of that um, over the past four years in the Trump administration of change being made by regulation. So there are changes that 
I think the incoming administration will want to undo from the past four years and then there are things that they will want to affirmatively do and they can use some of these regulatory levers to do them um so in order of how quickly and how easily you can use these regulatory levers um executive orders those can be done or undone with a stroke of a pen and typically the president will will sign or revoke some executive orders you know in the first day or two after the inauguration um one thing that uh the president might do is rejoin the world health organization that's something you can do by executive order there are also um so every administration at the end of the administration does rushes through a spate of what we might call midnight regulations they try to dump everything they've got in their portfolio and get it get it out the door um, the regulations that haven't been finalized can be frozen by the incoming um, in administration and or, or rescinded. It's easier if the regulations haven't been finalized. If they've been finalized, but they're not in effect yet. The incoming administration can delay them. If they were finalized within 60 legislative days of the end of the last Congress, Congress can um, overturn them. And again, that's a simple majority rule. It's not a 60 vote margin. That's something called the Congressional Review Act. Um, and then regulations that have been in place for longer that an incoming administration would want to undo, they have to go through the full regulatory process. They have to do notice and comment and and follow the requirements of the Administrative Procedures Act. So that's a longer process. So in that category, I'm thinking of things like um, the, the Trump administration had uh, adopted rules expanding the availability of short-term health insurance plans. Mm -hmm. These are plans that do not meet the ACA requirements for coverage and financial protection. And it is a priority of the incoming administration to to rescind that rule, but it, they will have to go through the whole notice and comment procedure, and it will take a little longer to to rescind that rule than it would for some of the rules that haven't yet been finalized. So, one example that springs to mind is um, states, in order to receive increased support for, I believe, either Medicaid or Medicare um, during the COVID pandemic, um, said that they wouldn't change requirements or purge rules and that was walked back recently so where does that fall um that's a that's a good question so that's actually that's medicaid uh it was in one of the first uh pieces of legislation that congress passed after the pandemic broke or, or started and um congress provided a 6.2 percent bump in the federal matching rate to all state Medicaid programs. And they said, in order to keep receiving this extra money, you can't um, basically kick people off your Medicaid rolls um, as long as the public health emergency continues. That public health emergency has, has been extended, I think, four times and now runs until sometime in April and the incoming administration is likely to extend it further. 
So those protections are in place that um, uh, people can't be kicked off of the Medicaid rolls so long as states want to continue receiving this enhanced funding. You're right, the um, CMS recently adopted um, an interim final rule that they said was immediately effective that reinterpreted the scope of those protections. We and many other patient groups filed comments saying you were wrong, CMS, in, in loosening the, those protections. Um, so that would definitely be a, first of all, it's a rule that I think will face challenge, <laughs> um, but also it's a rule that falls into certainly that Congressional Review Act window that Congress could, could um, overturn it uh, if they chose to because of the timing of the rule. Um, but in terms of rescinding the, I, I'm not quite sure uh, how that will play out because like I say the the rule is is subject to challenges it's very tricky when an administration and, and the outgoing administration has done this on on several occasions here does a rule that they say is on an emergency basis and they make it effective immediately even before that normal comment period has run and that's the situation we find ourselves in so um, there, there will be grounds for challenge for the Well, I appreciate that this is not a normal circumstance by any means in regards to this rule. I appreciate you indulging my curiosity <laughs> and educating me about it because like I said, I didn't even know if it was mentioned in particular. Um, but you know, it, it's good to hear that there are multiple avenues available and that some of these things will be addressed through executive order and through regulatory oversight, even if the, some other items get gummed up in the works of Congress. But you know, for all of the ACA is this towering edifice of American healthcare, there's lots of other pieces as well. So what other um, policies or ideas have you heard thrown about, about reforming American healthcare outside of the ACA and what can we expect on that front going into this Congress? Um, drug pricing is always a, a hot topic and has been a focus of the outgoing administration and I expect it to continue to be a focus. Um, I, there's bipartisan interest in drug pricing, but there has traditionally been a split between the parties and the different ways that they would like to approach it. So. It's a long-standing plank of the democratic policy agenda to call for Medicare negotiation of drug prices. Um, there, there were bills passed in the 116th Congress that didn't make it through to, to enactment that called for Medicare negotiation. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether those advance and, and what kind of um, alignment happens around those two bills. Some of these midnight regulations from the outgoing administration also address drug pricing and some of them have been very controversial and are already in, in court being challenged. Um, so one of them uh, was a regulation to try and tie the price of certain drugs 
in America to the lower prices paid for those same drugs overseas. Um, that's a very blunt tool to try and address the, the problem of high American drug prices and um, not clear that the incoming administration would want to use that same tool as it takes its own tack towards the problem of drug prices. Um, and so that raises an interesting question um, that an incoming administration, if the last administration's rules are tied up in court, the incoming administration may decide to stop defending those lawsuits. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so it will be interesting to see how that ends up. Um, one of the topics that I, I neglected to bring up earlier was um, in the area of Medicaid eligibility. The outgoing administration put a lot of, um, tried to really crank back on Medicaid eligibility. They approved, they asked, they encouraged states to apply for, and then they approved work and reporting requirements. So basically saying that Medicaid recipients had to satisfy, um, had to work X number of hours a month and had to report on an ongoing basis at the risk of losing their Medicaid coverage. Um, the incoming administration is not, is, does not look favorably on those kinds of restrictions. So far, they're not in effect in any state, even though they've been approved in about a dozen states because um, courts have ruled against them. So here's another, that case is going up to the Supreme Court. So the last administration was defending those restrictions the incoming administration is not likely to defend those restrictions and is likely to want to take a more expansive view of Medicaid eligibility um, going forward. So that it will be not clear whether the or how fast the incoming administration could um, rescind the approvals these restrictive approvals from the past administration, but going forward, they're certainly not likely to approve more of those kinds of programs or block grants for Medicaid, something else that the outgoing administration has done in the you know, 11th hour here. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, it, it certainly sounds like a confusing time in the world of healthcare as the outgoing administration approved so many things that the incoming administration is unlikely to look favorably upon, as you said. I'm sure that's going to cause lots of upheavals in the coming months and years. But um, you know, difficult to predict all that without a crystal ball. My last question for you would be zooming into the really, really tiny granular level. As a community, the, the bleeding disorders community has some specific um, issues in achieving access to care that are not super common in the, the larger population of Americans trying to get access to healthcare. So do we have any special issues that might see litigation? And if so, what's that look like? Um, so one of the really exciting pieces of news at the end of, uh, of 2020 was that this giant omnibus bill that got passed with um, COVID relief with the federal budget for the year. So this is December of 2020 included the provisions of the SNF Access Act, which anyone who went to Washington, NHF's Washington days will be familiar with. That's um, 
it, it addresses even a tiny subset of the tiny bleeding disorders population, but people with bleeding disorders who are uh, covered by Medicare and who need, um, who are in the hospital for some acute care and then need follow-up care in a skilled nursing facility. In the past, it's been very hard to get access to those skilled nursing facilities because Medicare reimburses them on a bundled rate and that bundled rate doesn't come close to covering the cost of clotting factor for people mm -hmm. who use clotting factor. Um, and so the SNF Access Act, Hemophilia SNF Access Act, um, just says Medicare can pay separately to cover the cost of clotting factor. Mm -hmm. And that got into the final omnibus bill. The omnibus bill ended up being thousands of pages. So there, there's lots of discrete pieces of legislation that got rolled up in it. Um, very exciting that this problem, uh, that the SNF access provisions made it into the bill and addressed that problem so that people with bleeding disorders covered by Medicare who need care in a skilled nursing facility now don't face that obstacle. So it's always wonderful to be able to celebrate a, a success like that. Um, going forward for 2021, I would say um, access to coverage, especially because of COVID, because of job loss, and because of the, pressure, the budgetary pressure on states and um, what that means for state Medicaid programs once they can start kicking people off or, or reducing benefits. So adequate, accessible coverage is a concern for people with bleeding disorders and out-of-pocket costs. Mm -hmm. So um, because of the expense of living with a bleeding disorder and, and accessing the medication that you need to preserve your health and live with a bleeding disorder, um, people in our community routinely hit their out-of-pocket out -pocket maximums rely on copay assistance to be able to afford those thousands of dollars in health care spending each and every year on top of their premiums. And um, health plans have increasingly found ways to, to not let people benefit from copay assistance uh, programs. So the burden of out-of-pocket costs I see as a big issue for this community. Um, there is room to to advocate both. Let's not have out-of-pocket costs of that size, mm -hmm. and to advocate on let's preserve the ability of, of patients and or and consumers to benefit from these copay assistance programs because otherwise it's just an unsustainable financial burden to face those kinds of out-of-pocket costs year in year out. For life, it impacts people's financial security. It impacts their ability to keep accessing their treatment and staying adherent to their treatment regimens. And over time, it affects their ability to save for a house, save for college, save for retirement. It really ends up being a tax based on their genetic inheritance. Mm -hmm. So. So for me, I think the two big issues in 2021, coverage and financial toxicity, dealing with those out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, hey, I thought that was a really lovely answer. As you say, we share so many common causes and concerns with other groups, but we 
also have our own really specific ones, like that SNF Act that you mentioned. And it's so encouraging that we're seeing progress and support on so many of these issues. And I hope that continues into the future. And just on behalf of all people with bleeding disorders, if I can be so presumptive, I really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you and the rest of the PAGE team at HFA for the work you do advocating for us on these important topics. Well, thank you. And, uh, and thanks to all who, who stay engaged, who educate themselves about this issue, and who you know, serve as the grassroots, um, you know, telling, telling their lawmakers, highlighting these issues and advocating for change. Yeah. That was Miriam Goldstein from the Hemophilia Federation of America. It's been a difficult 2020, I know, for many of us, but we have bright hopes in the future for 2021 in so many areas, and one of them is the area of policy. So I hope this was an educational conversation. Thank you so much for listening, like Miriam said, for participating in the fight to expand access to coverage. And Let's just hope things keep on looking brighter as we move into this new administration and new slate of policies. Mm -hmm.